Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest team. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of the podcast. Today, we have an episode of Editors Unedited, and I'm so excited to introduce Gabriella Dube, editor at Echo. She's going to be speaking with best-selling and prize-winning author Joyce Carol Oates, and they're going to be speaking about Joyce's new novel coming out August 3rd, titled Breathe. With that, I'm handing over the reins to Gabriella. Hello, and thanks for having us. Uh, Joyce, I, I wanted to start out by asking you to tell us a little bit about your novel, Breathe, kind of what it's about and, and what its origins are. Well, the, the novel has this wonderful photograph on the cover. This is a photograph uh, taken in Bryce Canyon by my, my late husband, Charlie Gross. And the, the novel is very much about an adventure, a kind of extraordinary, catastrophic adventure that a couple has going to a really like a different landscape. I wanted to make the novel very lyric and poetic and somewhat dreamlike, but also based upon a very specific reality. So there's a good deal of detail of hospital experience and actual medical experience. But at at the same time, the novel is in a, a sort of undefined territory, really, of, of nightmare, I guess one could say, a, a kind of juxtaposition of the world that's interior, which we all inhabit, especially when we sleep at night, and we're susceptible to dreams, uh, juxtaposing that subjective reality with the harsh clinical reality of the external world, because we, we really dwell in both of them. And we sort of look to art, I think, to bring some conjoining of the two realities. Can you say a little more about, well, I guess a little bit first, that nightmare journey, what that entails, and sort of what what Michaela, the central character, goes through in this book? Well, on the surface, the most obvious story is that a husband, who is very much beloved by his wife, the scholar, has fallen ill. At first, they don't know what's wrong. He's in, they're in a part of the world rather like in the area near Santa Fe, which is quite elevated. When you first go to an elevated landscape, if you're from the East, let's say, you're very breathless because you're not getting enough oxygen. So the most immediate visceral experience is one of disorientation when you're at a high altitude. You're kind of panting and it's difficult to sleep. And in this case, the breathlessness 
kind of leads to a real illness. I mean, it, the two of them are kind of mixed together. So it isn't known at first what's wrong with him. Huh. Also, I, I don't want to confuse the explanation of the plot. That's the most obvious evident level of the plot. But at the same time, when this couple were was in the East, they went swimming in a lake in upstate New York, which had somewhat warm water. It's, and it's also possible that they were infected with a kind of bacteria. So there's this subterranean theme in very short chapters, usually in italics, where it seems that somebody is semi-conscious or in a fever state and maybe suffering a delirium caused by an infection of, of the brain. So those chapters are very short and very much like prose poetry. And so one doesn't ultimately know whether the whole novel may be a fever dream or it may be that they're somehow both at the same time. I wanted to write a novel in which the ecology and the environment are very evident, very much like almost on every page. Because in, in one part of the novel, the, the widow who's searching for her husband, uh, she feels that the husband is trying to come back or his spirit is still in the environment. The spirit is somewhere near and she has to look for him. Our widows do feel things like that. Some people may say that they're totally insane or mad, you know, but anyone who's been a widow, you don't go through many weeks or even months of a kind of suspended reality where you're still looking around for the lost person and you feel on some level and certainly in your dreams that the person isn't entirely gone. So I, I think that when somebody dies, there's still a conversation with that person that goes on maybe for years. I've heard people say that they have a better relationship with their deceased father than they had when, when he was alive because the relationship in a weird way keeps growing, even though it's, it's somewhat one-sided, except if you're in a dream, the other person might, might respond to you. So in the, in the novel that is most evident, the widow goes to a canyon. It's a place that she and her husband had been planning to go. She's on a hike. This is a fictionalized, it's fictionalized in the novel. I think that it really existed and, and probably I was there. Cold Spring Canyon State Park. There are many places in the West where you go to a hike in a canyon. In this case, there were Pueblo ruins. You're warned continuously to stay out of the canyons if there's any threat of rain, because the canyons fill up rapidly with flash floods and you can be swept away and drowned very, you know, like within an hour. The sky could become dark with clouds. It could be a flash flood and you would die. So in one part of the novel, the widow does seem to be carried away in a, in a sudden flash flood and she dies. We sort of see her, we experience her dissolution. 
She's been following her husband in the canyon. He turns around to look at her. He's quite a distance ahead. She keeps following him and then this cataclysm happens. But then in the next chapter, Mikawa, who is the main character in the novel, is preparing to go to the airport and come back east. And she reads an article in a local paper about a woman who had died in a flash flood and the woman's name is not given. So she's sort of shocked to read that the woman doesn't have, seem to have any identification and nobody knows who this woman is. Then she sort of puts the newspaper down and she's gonna to go to the airport. So in a sense, that's the end of the novel. But then there's one final little, little chapter that's only a paragraph long, a voice out of a fever cloud. So a hand is gripping yours and a warm dry hand. And this person is urging you to breathe. Darling, I love you so much. I have your hand and will never abandon. So we don't exactly know whether Makala herself is the person who has died or is in a fever state. Maybe that her husband is holding her hand, but somebody is holding her hand at the end. So it could be the person she thinks has died or maybe literally he has died, but he's still with her. The novel I think exists on a number of levels but as I said, there's the immediate level of the plot. Yeah. When we had corresponded about it early on, you spoke about it, the novel as having sort of a gothic horror element, which, you know, you seem to be getting at here too. You know, the way it describes something both unbearable and very ordinary in, in, in losing a partner. Um, and, and this refrain of breathe that goes that is the book's title and, and sort of permeates the story um, takes on a different dimension when you think about it in that, you know, in that light as, as, as someone struggling to breathe. Can you talk a little more about that as sort of a, a mantra or a touchstone in, in the book, um, this sort of invocation or, or plea to, to breathe? Yes, yes. It's sort of hard to talk about these things. They're so personal. Well, the element of breath, you know, if you're in a hospital vigil with somebody who actually would, is probably dying, there's always this long period where you don't, you just don't accept that the person is not going to come back, you know? And so the breath is just continuous. Sometimes it's erratic or it's irregular. But that's sort of like the bottom line is the breath. And so the person, as long as the person is breathing, there's the illusion, I suppose, that he could come back or, you know. Yeah. I, I, it's totally accidental, but maybe it's symbolic and evocative. Yeah, and I wonder too, um, you know, you were talking about, um, and there is sort of a, a breathlessness in the sense, both in the in the setting um, in New Mexico, like you like you were saying, and then sort of struggling to catch one's breath, um, and in the way the book is written, the sort of very the particular voice. I think there's a there's a sort of headlong quality. We're getting Michaela's internal dialogue, and we're getting a narration of what's happening to her in the world. 
and that creates a sense of um, you know breathlessness, but sort of um, a, a certain um, chaos of sorts um, that you convey really powerfully. I wonder how you arrived at that approach or how it suggested itself to you. I don't know that it was any particular approach. She sort of enters this stage where there's something so profoundly missing from her life that she can't help but keep looking for her. Now, at the same time, she knows that he is gone and she has his ashes in, a, in an urn. I mean, she understands that he doesn't exist any longer, yet she still feels that she's compelled to be searching for him. She doesn't want to leave the place where they were when he passed away. She doesn't want to come back home to the East, which would be for them Cambridge Mass. He was a professor at Harvard. She doesn't want to come back. So two people who are living in the houses in which somebody, they live with somebody who has passed away, they don't really want to leave that house, though they know the person's not coming back. They still feel, especially in a dream, you know, when you're not thinking rationally, you still feel that you should be there. And like, you don't want to abandon the person by not actually being there. And these thoughts are all what we would call irrational, but I guess 90% of our thoughts are irrational. When you consider that our politics, American politics is driven by irrational passions to an astonishing extent. There's almost very little interest in facts. It's more that there's this drive that's emotional. It's, it's only in the realm of science and math that we, get a, we try to get away from emotion and have something like a factual reality, an objective reality. But the rest of life is sort of awash in passions and subterranean motives that we often don't even understand. So if you lose somebody very close to you, which could be a mother, a father would be just a catastrophic loss for a young child. So inevitably, you will be looking for that person. It's not anything that you can escape. You can try to understand it. So you're going to be looking for the lost father or the lost mother. I had a, a dear friend, Gloria Vanderbilt, who passed away within the last two years. And Gloria was a very famous person, but she never really, never really had a mother and she never really had a father. Her father died when she, he was much, much older than her mother. He died when she was very young really young, then her mother was elusive in her life. And she was always, Gloria was first year of her life. She was just with a nanny. Her parents left her. They went off to Europe. So Gloria, Gloria understood, I think, that she was always looking for the lost father. She was always looking for a man, a certain kind of man who was strong and would protect her. And I think she probably understood rationally what the pattern was in her life. Nonetheless, even if you understand that pattern, you're still susceptible to it. And I have to say it's, it is actually true. I mean, it's not just, it's not just an idea. I think psycho, I've never been psychoanalyzed, but I think psychoanalysis deals with uncovering these patterns 
So if your first love in, in your life was abusive to you, when you get out of that, you're going to keep looking, you're going to look for that relationship again. So you can relive it and do a little bit better the second time. And there may be people who will love you who are really nice, decent men, but they won't interest you. They're all, they're friends, but they don't have that dark attraction for you that the lover had who was abusive. Now in my novel, the husband was not abusive. After he dies, he, he goes into a state where his identity in her, the widow's mind, he starts to shift. So he's much more elusive and difficult in death than he was in life. And she keeps meeting people who are like her husband in different stages. Like, well, this could be her husband if he'd never met her. We all, we all might meet somebody who might have loved us, but doesn't love us. But if he had loved us, the relationship would be very intense, but he doesn't love us. So it's like a different person. So though she is in a state in which her rationality is suspended, on another way, emotionally, she's just playing out a role that's, I think, very necessary for grieving, the stages of grief. It's, it's interesting what you say that, you know, if you, you don't have a certain figure, perhaps in your life, a father figure, a mother figure, you might be searching for that person again and again in the world. At the same time, if you have a very strong example of a very uh, a powerful figure, a husband or a wife, and that and you lose that person, you might <laughs> you might continue to search for that that person. Well, it seems one way or the other, you're left, you may be left following those, repeating those patterns or trying to fill that void. Um, it's, it, it, it's inescapable in some sense. Yes, and for many people, it takes them to on a, on a religious pilgrimage because the void will be filled with Jesus Christ or another savior or God. So if that works emotionally for some people, then it works and they, their lives can be saved by that there does there is an emptiness that has to be filled it can be filled with many different things probably some people may just go out and get a, a rescue animal bring home a rescue dog who really needs to be saved and though it seems simple at the same time it's profound because then you take on an, and i don't have a dog <laughs> but i have cats I think the, re the relationship with a, with a dog would be something that, while not anywhere near like a relationship with a person, would almost be compensatory emotionally. Because the dog of all the animals needs a human companion just as much as you need a companion, the dog needs you. And so that feeling that some creature needs you keeps you in the world. Because there's a strong sense in the survivor that the that the person should take his, her own life or commit suicide or do something to punish yourself for having survived that's a strong motive that i think a psychoanalysis will bring out 
people become reckless with their lives. And and we it seems like we don't always talk about this element of it, but it's drawn very strikingly in, in the novel that Nicola becomes a care a caretaker really and, and that is her primary um, role when her husband gets sick and suddenly you know when you lose your partner then you're deprived of that of that purposeful activity in a sense so it's, it's sort of not only are you bereft because of the loss of the person but your your role is taken from you as well um, and, and there are moments in the book and we we sort of touched on on the the way it's told um, and this kind of irrational thread that runs through, but where it fit, it, it feels to Mikala that sort of language is failing her, language is failing to describe the kind of unreality and strangeness of what um, she's going through. And that feels particularly fraught for the reader since we're relying on, you know, language to understand her situation. It's sort of destabilizing for us too. I wondered if, if that was, reflected for you in the in the experience of writing at all you know if it felt particularly elusive and uncanny to to write this novel well yes that's that's true but but the but the adverse is true too that language allows us many many ways of analysis and development and exploration so if you read Marcel Proust for instance or Malcolm Lowry or James Joyce you are reading prose that really probes into the interstices of reality. Even though Macau is in a state of dissolution, but she spends a lot of time thinking and she's meditating and she sees these other people. Now, one of the first things that you experience as a widow is that the world is sort of coupled. And then you realize that you were, you had been a couple and that this other person was magnifying your identity and position in the world so that you're like doubled in the world and that uh, the widow is kind of loosed in the world. Now her connection probably has to be that she has to be a caretaker. She has to give love to somebody else. And I am an optimist, the, no the novel itself contains the germs of a possible life for her. Yeah, you see her wanting to, um, or see the seeds of her re-engaging the world, uh, it, it seems like. Um, and, you know, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about writing about, about this in fiction, you're reckoning with this in fiction um, in comparison in, uh, to memoir. Uh, you've written a, a memoir, a widow's story. Um, about the loss of, of a beloved husband. I wonder how those forms felt different. That, that is, an it is an interesting question. In a way, it's like having been very ill. Say you're extremely ill with an infection, so you're in a delirium state in like a 1990 but you get over that. But then the same thing sort of happens again 20 or 30 years later. And even though you've experienced it before, it's actually the same. 
it's like the same thing again, you know, and you don't really know that you've learned much. When I wrote my memoir, Widow Story, that was about three months in the life of a widow, which are the most difficult months. I think if you can get through three months, you can probably get through the rest of it. That was the three months of insomnia for me where I couldn't, I just couldn't sleep. So it was a very, a very fraught state. And when you can't sleep, everything is too hyper and you can't really make any intelligent decisions. Everything is sort of agitated. I guess it's the way people feel if they're on steroids, where the brain is too sharp and you're very, you're hyper alert because you can't, you can't relax. So at the end of about three months in my life, I remember I was reading in bed and I started to get sleepy and my eyes, my eyes started closing and it was the most astonishing experience that the ability to to sleep was the beginning of getting over the intensity of the grief because one thing we do take for granted is sleep most people can sleep however when you can't sleep you're really in a radical neurological state where you can't you can't really survive too long so there's some kind of sleep. You're not really sleeping deeply, but you might sleep a few minutes and you wake up and you sleep a little later, but it's a discontinuous sleep. It's, it's like a nightmare. So the reality of the world and your own dreams are kind of jumbled together in a hallucinatory state. So Mikhail is in that state for this novel. She doesn't have a good night's sleep at all because it's, it's too recent. So she never gets beyond that state. I also lived through the pandemic as, as we all did. And the pandemic in the beginning, like in March, 2020, was very much like an insomniac state. I think many, many people weren't sleeping correctly and properly in kind of a hallucinatory state. So many people I know didn't sleep normally. And also during the day, we were, we were not really sitting still. We're kind of walking from room to room. I remember not being able to sit still for more than five minutes at the beginning of the lockdown. Every hour, there were more cases in New Jersey. And we were told, stay indoors, don't go out. Stay indoors, don't go out in New Jersey and maybe New York City also. And these numbers kept spiking. We literally had no idea, and we've forgotten now, but we had no idea then whether we'd be alive in, you know, a couple of weeks. Anybody who was hearing that news could think, well, I might die. I might be dead next week because we had no idea even how things were contracted. So I think some of these states of mind are analogous to, to grieving and the anxiety that McCullough was going through is very much what I later experienced just being in my, my house in Princeton, New Jersey. And sort of thinking back on that time, like we, we are all going into our office to clean out our, our spaces. And yeah. it's so, I mean, it's true. There's something so haunted and eerie about it. We're, you know, we're seeing the books that we were working on there on the shelves in spring 2020. And it is like a 
place frozen in in time. Uh, I haven't I haven't been back to my office. I haven't been back. So we all had the vague idea, like my students and I, well, we'll be back in April. We think we're coming back in April. That was the rumor that the, the kids had, April 2020. So I, I had books in my office and in my mailbox. I thought, well, I'll, I'll pick it up next week or two weeks from now, I'm coming back. And so those books are still in my mailbox from March 2020. I mean, I can't imagine what the mail looks like. I, I mean, I hope, I hope there's no, I hope there isn't all that mail. On the other hand, we're living in such a fraught world that maybe in September 2021, we'll be back in lockdown. Maybe somebody will say, no, you can't come back because there's a new variant and there's a new virus. That's one of the things I was writing about in my novel, that out of the earth, because the earth is warming, the earth is not getting as freezing as it used to be. So the bacteria that would ordinarily die off, say right in, in New York state, they're not, then it's not dying off the way it used to. So there are, there are lakes, there are lakes that people are swimming in right as I speak right now that are contaminated with bacteria of a kind that weren't there in the past so in such intensity. There's something like that as a possibility that they have been infected by, by the landscape, infected by your, your earth and your own property. The soil, the air and the water, it's been contaminated by human actions so that there isn't the, uh, the dying off of the bacteria that, to the extent that they used to be. So what I'm saying has been said many times by environmentalists. I think the average person just didn't want to listen. Not thinking about it is a state of denial. Uh, writers try to probe these states of denial and dramatize them. So all these things I write about in my novel, because the, uh, the two main characters are intellectuals and they're concerned with the environment. And, and the... You know, as you've said, the landscape and the, their surroundings feel very much present throughout the book um, in ways that uh, sometimes maybe feel insidious in, in uh, at other moments reassuring in in their sort of continuation. Um, but it's but it's interesting. I hadn't thought about um, the kind of environmental angle and the sort of the climate change crisis. Um, um, yeah. Well, Joyce, I don't, I don't want to, this is fascinating and I love to talk with you. I um, don't want to take up too much of your time. Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.